Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Good thanks Ed. I feel fundamentally changed because in the past week I've seen both Uncut Gems and a little film you may have heard of called Parasite. Mm, so now you understand all the memes. I do. It's really nice to have the comprehension to fully enjoy the memes and you know it's worth it alone. Um, yes, I mean, this is sort of pushing us right into our news, but yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed Parasite, apart from the very, very end. And you and I had a little chat off recording about this, and I don't want to talk about it in detail for people who have not seen it, um, because spoilers, but, you know, for most of its running time, I thought it was hilarious, and the same kind of genre blending and tone bending delight that we've seen from Korean cinema and that Bong Joon-ho does so beautifully. And what was also really lovely was that um, I saw it on Thursday, just gone at one of my, uh, I mean, I'm very fortunate in Glasgow to have quite a good uh, cinematic spread. I've got a good choice of venues to go to. But I went to the GFT, Glasgow Film Theatre, and on Thursday at eight o'clock, it was pretty much a sold out screening. Mm. which was pretty exciting I just I haven't seen a film that's brought that many people together before and yes there may be maybe more than a little bit of uh, probably because it was I saw it in um, an art house cinema as well maybe a little bit of performative aren't we all being so good watching this film that's not in the English language and it's really um you know aren't, aren't we great but that aside <laughs> Um, yeah, magic. Really, really enjoyed it. And then, yeah, I watch Uncut Gems in the comfort of my own home, and I've never vicariously enjoyed someone else's panic attack more. Mm, yeah, I think that's the thing that I think kind of gets lost a little bit when people talk about Uncut Gems, is it is, you know, it's it's stressful because it's a guy going through an absolute hellish couple of days, but it is also just, like, tremendously enjoyable to watch. Like, it moves at such a great pace. It's so funny the supporting cast are all really engaging. I love seeing like all of the just people, the Safdies found on the streets of New York and yeah. said, hey, you want to be in a movie? Um, too. I like that real palpable sense of, of world building they have to it, you know, not in a, like a fantasy sense, but just in the yeah. sense of as you're watching it, you feel like, oh, this feels like New York. This does the band right? specifically. This feels like the Diamond District. It really feels like yes. that specific block of New York. Yeah, that was that was brilliant as well. Because again, it's a bit of New York that you don't normally see because it's typically like very glossy in a particular part of Manhattan, like or Brooklyn. Mm. So it's great to see, like, as you say, like, and that is his entire world as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like really immersive. And I loved the soundtrack as well like um mm. you know one oh tricks point never but under his actual name daniel Payton, i thought it was just oh it was it was a delight like yeah i love i love that score so much it's one that's found its way into my rotation of music like having the background when i'm reading or working and the thing i really love about it is that the score really doesn't sound like the movie it is soundtracking. No, no. <laughs> like if you if you play that for people in isolation, and you know, I think um, Daniel Lepatin has talked about this. Like it's very heavily indebted to like the score to Akira and other kind of like fantastical science fictiony soundscape things. You know, you could imagine it being used to soundtrack. Like if someone wanted to re-record a soundtrack for Blade Runner or something. Yeah, you you could totally put it on that and that's one of the things about it that I think is really special about Uncut Gems and this was especially true when like it went out in wide release and loads of people were seeing it and I saw loads of discussion about it on Twitter of people talking about the kinds of movies it reminded them of mm. there was like 50 movies that people were talking about and they were all in like wildly different genres like I saw people talking about how the opening reminds them of the opening of The Exorcist which has a similar kind of like Oh, it's taking place in a different country and it's establishing this kind of like almost kind of quasi supernatural 
thing that overhangs over the whole movie. Obviously, you know, like Cassavetes and other great New York movies are, are in there as well. But also like the stylized cin- cinema of, of Brian De Palma. There's a lot of Carlitos way in there. Like it's a movie that, and what I find quite exciting about it is it's not like the uh, Safdies have just kind of like chopped and changed all these movies and thrown them on together. It's more like, oh, they've created something that feels so wholly theirs that everyone just has to keep pulling at all these disparate things to try and create some sort of sense of comparison mm. because it kind of doesn't really feel like anything else other than like their previous movies. It's everything and, and nothing all at once. Mm. But yeah, I think those are two, those those movies are like my one and two of last year. So to have seen them both in the course of a week is like a hell of a week of, uh, of movie going, it has well, to be said. Well, you know, as we know, 2020 is the year that fits probably four, maybe five years into one. So I'm already done for two years of film watching. Mm, yeah, and uh, and Howie definitely feels like he's living about a year's worth of time in like the five <laughs> days or whatever that Uncut Gems covers. For sure. As you alluded to earlier, uh, Parasite, of course, has done did fairly well at the old Oscars last week. Did it? Uh, Didn't do too yeah. badly. At the start of last week's episode, obviously, we gave our predictions. And as I was editing the episode last week, I was editing it after the Oscars had aired. And as I was editing it, I was just kind of like struck anew about how incredible it was that Parasite had won. Because even as it was happening and I was seeing like the episode, I couldn't watch the uh, ceremony live because I couldn't find a decent stream of it so I was like following it mainly through people's reactions on twi- Twitter or like checking IMDB which was refreshing fairly often with the results and like as it started to win something like the awards that it was expected to win like uh, best international feature and uh, original screenplay which wasn't a given but was like felt like one that Bong Joon-ho would have a fairly strong chance in because obviously the movie is so wonderfully written and constructed. Uh, I was like, oh, this is, that's great. It's great that it's doing so well. Uh, it's it's a shame that it's not going to win like the big awards because uh, 1917 seemed to be doing really well in like the technicals and that didn't seem to be like this sense of like, oh, you know, Parasite's got it nailed on or whatever. And then Bong Joon-ho won director and I was like, oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's great that he mm. won that. Um, clearly, you know, they're going to do the usual split that has happened in recent years where there's like a movie that the Academy really likes to give best picture to, but someone who's done great work and they want to give them the best picture, uh, best director, Oscar. I thought that's that's great. But then when the update came in saying like uh, Parasite won best picture, I was just floored. I just could not believe it had happened. (laughs) Me neither. I mean, as I casting our minds back to last episode, I was like, maybe they'll pull a moonlight. They pulled a fucking moonlight. Like, Mm. look at how, you know, the Academy chose Green Book last year. Mm. And now we're here. And it's strange because you wonder how much each of the people who voted for it maybe understood that possibly it applied to them i think it's tricky because there's a lot of criticism going around like film twitter and stuff right now saying like oh exactly that point like the oscars are seen as like quite a capitalist symbol possibly masquerading as like artistic integrity um Mm. there was a lot of chat about you know the gift bags that people were given and, and like the sort of tens of thousands of dollars of value that the gifts that those gift bags comprised of had and this mishmash of like, oh, you know, sustainability was sort of a theme and all that kind of thing. And yet I wonder, you know, the bulk of the Academy, I don't think is actually these major stars (laughs) Mm. or or the people who are earning the most. You know, we've had um, in the UK recently, a survey came out that maybe like nine out of 10 people who work in in, in the film and TV industry have had serious mental health episodes i mean and it infers that it's off the back of their work i haven't read the survey or the kind of you know report in detail but i think really maybe we need to see the academy there's a lot of criticism that it is there's a big bulk of like a certain generation of white straight cis men yes but i think the majority of people in the academy are probably below the line members <laughs> mm. who who aren't the one who are you know and it's not just the people who are paid however much to fill the seats in that giant theater in there in the shopping mall there are a lot of people who are living from paycheck to paycheck because that is still how the majority of the industry works even in hollywood 
Um, and I wonder whether it's them who sort of, it was, it was those people who swung it, maybe. I don't know, maybe that's too charitable of me, but I'm feeling charitable today. <laughs> I mean, I could, I can certainly believe it because I think you're right in that there is this definite perception of Hollywood as a place of like these rich elites, and there are certainly those. There's obviously a lot of very, very wealthy actors and directors and producers and things like that. But the film industry is at its heart kind of a working class industry because you have a lot of people who are essentially independent contractors or people who are, you know, just kind of going from job to job if they're lucky they're part of one of the unions and they have like protections from that perspective but you know even actors who do kind of work on television or or film you know they are often like they're unemployed most of the time uh, unless they're a series regular there's lots of people who are essentially just kind of like grinding out and making a living maybe have to take jobs in between in between acting roles to, to pay the bills, even, you know, people are fairly, which is one of the interesting things about like um, podcasting over the last couple of years, when you see a lot of actors and comedians kind of taking up post- podcasting as kind of a side hustle to both get their name out there, but also, you know, if they become popular enough and get uh, advertising revenue, it, you know, it can help keep them afloat. And I really feel like those are the sort of people for whom, Parasite would probably really resonate in a major way because so much of it is about class and about exploitation and about the the obliviousness of the the rich elites to the suffering that they cause to people. Which uh, you know, in some ways, it winning the Oscar really kind of like uh, almost validates its hypothesis because you know all of the rich elites being unable to maybe perceive that oh, this movie is about us. Yeah, <laughs> and just keep. But yeah, I, I like like you say, it is like the Moonlight thing where clearly the best movie nominated won. And that feels like such a rarity. And for a movie that feels so unlike any of the movies that usually get nominated for Best Picture, unless it's like, you know, but this is kind of an expanded field where you'll see something like a, a District 9, which is not a movie on the same quality of Parasite, but like is not a movie that you would expect to get nominated for Best Picture if it weren't for the fact they had to fill out the ballot. Mm. And the nice thing about the expanded ballot like that is you do get instances where a movie that would be traditionally shut out of the top five makes it into the top 10 suddenly gets the attention and then suddenly everyone thinks oh this is great (laughs) we should reward this with all of the awards because it is truly wonderful and yeah I was just really just so made up for everyone involved in that movie for the recognition that it's got for the presumably greater success that it's going to enjoy this weekend because it just got put back into about 2,000 theatres in the US as, as a kind of like a celebration to mark its, its uh, victory and presumably it'll get a lot of attention from that and just for what this means, not just for Bong Joon-ho, who I'm sure is unaffected by this in terms of his career because he is someone who's just had tremendous success and really gone on to do more or less whatever he wants anyway, but in terms of like Neon, the company that produced it, who are a fairly young studio, have only really been around for the last five years or so and have produced a lot of really good, interesting stuff. But for them to have a Best Picture winner so soon into their career, hopefully augurs great things for them in terms of greater clout and greater opportunities to produce work by people who maybe wouldn't have thought about working with them prior to this. Absolutely. And it's just incredible that this is the very first non-English language speaking film to win Best Picture. Like the door that that's Mm. opened is phenomenal. And the viewing figures for this year's Oscar ceremony are the lowest they've ever been. But I Mm. wonder if that's because a lot of people after last year were like, nah, nah. I'd be really interested to see what the uptake is in viewership next year off the back of off the back of this really glorious win. Mm. I wonder if maybe they'll consider making it easier to watch via the internet going forward because Mm. it feels like a lot of people who watch it don't watch it on television and it feels like if that's where a lot of people choose to watch it and so many people are like uh, cutting the cord and not having television that it would make sense for ABC to make it easier for people to watch it on their app. Like I watched the 
um, the Super Bowl this year via the Fox app because I don't have cable anymore. And that was super easy. It was a free app that I just downloaded and I could watch it. And that's, you know, one of the biggest television events of the year and the opportunity to kind of create more, you know, kind of making a, a more people legally able to watch that kind of event, I think, would probably boost the viewership of the Oscars, which is already like globally a hugely watched thing. I feel like if they made it easier for people to watch it through online, through tradition, uh, through official channels, that maybe that would be a step in the right direction. Mm. But because I'm, pr- I'm assuming Disney are probably producing it next year as well, because they usually sign like multiple year contracts with the studios and the networks. Like maybe they wouldn't necessarily go there. Or they'll be like, yeah, you can watch it, but you have to watch it through Disney Plus or something. The other kind of like thing about Parasite winning that I feel is even wilder than it winning at all was that it didn't win Best Editing and Best Production Design because those are so integral to it. Right, they built that house. Mm, Yeah. Uh, So yeah, that, that was kind of the only bit of news that we really had for this week because obviously that was a huge wonderful uh, surprise to kick off the week so we'll jump straight into our main topic this week which is uh, I guess like formative childhood horrors I guess or uh, you know films from childhood or tv shows from childhood that really scared us this uh, was inspired by a conversation I saw on twitter with uh, Anne Bilson the the film writer who uh, was tweeting about movie deaths that struck her as being particularly unfair and the first one she listed was the death of the character Eddie Carr in The Lost World Jurassic Park Eddie Carr for people who are unfamiliar with that film uh, which I would assume would be most people because it's not great <laughs> as far as I mean it's it's probably the best Jurassic Park sequel but you know that's that's not saying much but Eddie Carr is a character played by Richard Schiff in the movie who is kind of just like there for the most part in the movie he's like helping the main characters get around on this island and he's like just a general genial guy he's just kind of quite nice and is kind of very likable and halfway through the movie the main characters including uh vince vaughn and julianne moore and uh, jeff goldblum get themselves into a bit of a pickle when they decide to take an injured baby t-rex into their kind of big camper van that they're traveling around the island in in order to treat it uh, its cries attract its two parents and the two giant T-Rex stop bashing away at the van and knocking it over a cliff and Eddie Carr ends up saving them by attaching a rope to a car and pulling them up but in the process he is then picked up by one of the T-Rexes thrown up into the air the two T-Rexes grab him and then they rip him in half and it's a really horrible death and it's one of those deaths that I remembered as a kid seeing that movie in the theatre when I was like 10 or 11 years old and just being really upset by it (laughs) just thinking it's this really upsetting really cruel way for this character to die and how like profoundly unfair it was and how oddly gruesome it was and so when you and I were batting around uh, potential topics for this week like that was the one that immediately leapt out to me was like oh let's talk about things from childhood movies that really scared us and the things that impacted us so yeah so so that was would kind of be my first one was that the death of eddie carr in in the lost world which i i just remember be that and the bit towards the end of the movie when the t-rex who's rampaging around san diego eats a dog I remember that being very upsetting as well because it was kind of played for a joke. And I was thinking, but the dog's dead. Yeah, it's never, not nice. If you, if you kill a dog, it has to be John Wick motivation because everyone's on your side if you kill an adorable puppy. If it's mm. played for a laugh, I'm really not sure. In terms of along those lines, I'd have to say my first one to back, back to you, Ed, would be The Ice Storm. Oh, yeah. Which is a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, but takes a real turn towards the end. It's about these kind of two families in suburbia in 70s America, and it's all very, like, repression and trying to break out of norms. And it was made at a time where this was only really coming out, and I think it's the best example, whereas now you could say, like, oh, you know, what Oscar bait or, you know, your kind of standard art house fair. Um, mm. But it's so well done, beautifully shot. Everyone's brilliant in it. Katie Holmes in particular puts in a stunning comic 
performance. But it takes a turn, and spoilers, people, but, you know, it was made in 97, like, forgive me, is uh, Elijah Wood dying. Mm. Because he's mucking about in the snow and the ice after the ice storm, and there's a freak electrical accident with sort of an overhanging pylon, and it electrocutes the... It charges the kind of hard shoulder. Mm. Yeah, he's, like, sitting on a rail, and it hits the rail, and... And he's and he's just gone immediately. Yeah. And the that's the real sort of like begins the kind of conclusion of the film, the resolution of, and the emotional sort of shock of, for all of the characters. But that really struck me. I think because Elijah Wood's so brilliant at that moment of immediate death, like that really stuck with me because it just mm. felt so plausible and natural. And it's not in any way sensationalized. It's just a thing that happens, and you see it quite matter of factly. And that was something that really stuck with me, that someone so young could, you know, all of that. And how it, and also how it impacted me cinematically, that you'd have a film that seemed quite, everyone's emotions were very valid and deep, but still quite sort of ego-driven. Mm. And to have something that shifted that perspective so brutally was like, oh, wow, this is what you can do with filmmaking. This is what you can do with story. Yeah, that was certainly one. I think I watched that film for the first time probably when I was like 15 or 16, maybe. Mm. I remember I went when I was first kind of really getting into movies, there was, I would be like just recording anything that sounded interesting off the TV. And that was one of the ones I remember watching and being really taken by and being really shocked by that death at the end. Obviously the impact a little blunted by that point, because I'd obviously seen a lot of other movies where there's kind of sudden deaths, but even then, like the sudden death of a child and a child who had been, you know, fairly likable up to that point was still really quite a shocking thing to see. And like you say, like it being this sudden jolt of horrifying reality entering into this movie that's otherwise kind of, I think, more cerebral and existential for... And local as well. Yes, to have like that sudden thing of like oh a a truly like horrendous horrible non-theoretical thing has happened to these people and this is going to be a thing that they're going to have to that's going to overshadow like all of their lives for the years going forwards Mm. Uh, on a similar point uh, a movie that i remember watching a lot as a kid because uh, my mum loved it and loved the book that it was based on it was uh, fried green tomatoes which is not on its face, a scary movie. It's a kind of lively comedy drama about all these different women living in the South between World War One and World War Two, told largely in flashback with a wonderful cast. But early on, there it, there's a bit where it talks about how one of the characters' older, kind of like charismatic, charming brother was killed when he was hit by a train because he was playing on the train tracks and his shoe got caught in the trains and he couldn't get his foot out and so the train hit him and killed him and the the death itself is not like gruesome in my memory or anything because it's a fairly it's probably like a pg rated movie but you know i was quite young i grew up in uh, lots of various like rural places in england where there were lots of trains going around there was a a train line that ran along the back of the school i i studied at for a few years and that was like similar to like the ice storm and just like suddenly becoming aware of like the danger that is all around us in the form of electricity in the mm. there's not really anything <laughs> that can do be done to help you if like a, a power lab- a cable breaks and happens to fall down and hit you or hit something near you that electrocutes you like there that film was like a real injection of reality and of danger into like an ordinary everyday thing that up until that point I probably hadn't thought of in those terms like as a six or seven year old which is probably how old I was when I watched that movie because I remember it there was like I would just like to sit and watch movies with my parents regardless of what they were and that was one I remember watching a fair few times and like up until that point, trains to me was like Thomas the Tank Engine or mm. the thing the thing you go on to go and visit the grandparents or whatever. Like it wasn't a thing that in my head was really connected with the notion of, of danger and death. And so that was one of those. And at the same sort of time, I remember 
would have been around the times that, you know, in assemblies they would roll out the kind of like stand with the TV on to show people PSAs about, you know, don't play around on construction sites and don't hang around farms and things like that. And one of the ones I remember really uh, keenly in my mind was one about not playing next to train tracks and Mm. then thinking, suddenly being acutely aware of like, oh, there's lots of train tracks around where we live. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah so that that was kind of a, a trend in some of my ones that I saw was like these things may not have been intended as as necessarily scary in the moment but like they made me aware of like dangers in the real world yeah and for me like talking about dangers not in the real world at all I remember so clearly being taken to see the nightmare before Christmas mm. and when it came out so I was really young and I nearly had to be taken home because in cinemas, The Nightmare Before Christmas was screened with Tim Burton's short Vincent. Yes. Which I still haven't (laughs) been able to see since because Mm. it was just so horrific. Like, it, it was just so scary. And I think it's actually probably very humorous and aesthetically in tune with that kind of style and and probably quite fun and you know referential but for me as a little one I was just like what is this on a similar note a, a, a short I remember really really terrifying me being shown before a movie that wasn't in any way scary was the Disney short Runaway Brain Ooh. which was a Mickey Mouse short I think one of the like the first original Mickey Mouse short that had been made for a very long time, which aired before a Goofy movie over here. And it was all about Mickey's brain being swapped with that of a monster. And it was like really kind of like gothic and it had this whole like Frankenstein aesthetic to it. And there was something just really upsetting about seeing like genial Minnie Mouse being like this horrifying creature. And that was one of those ones where it it, not only was it like, something that was scary it was something that was unexpectedly scary like you don't go to a goofy movie thinking oh i'm going to see something that's going to be really creepy beforehand Mm. and also in terms of like things that probably weren't intended to be scary that really did a number on me as a kid uh i remember always being really really scared of the simpsons treehouse of horror episode that's based on nightmare on elm street yeah that's terrifying oh my god same 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 because obviously the concept of someone being able to kill you in your dreams is itself quite terrifying. And that's why the uh, Elm Street franchise obviously persisted for so long, even as the, the series kind of got progressively worse and worse. So transposing that to The Simpsons, even if it's kind of like riffing on it and kind of making jokes at its expense, I think it still can't kind of uh occlude the fact that it's inherently quite a scary thing and i remember the particular moment that still i find really kind of upsetting is when martin prince dies because he falls asleep in class he's being pursued by groundskeeper willie who keeps talking to him in latin because he's he's refighting latin latin uh, phrases and then he kind of has a essentially has a heart attack and class you know dies of fright and he just kind of like freezes into this kind of like rigor mortis phrase with his hands up and i just remember that the suddenness of that and the idea of being just scared to death literally i remember finding that very scary and again it ties into that elm street thing of there just being no protection because you're in your dreams and even when there's jokes later about like all the other kids are hanging out talking about how willie has chased them in their dreams and uh nelson walks up and he's all like shiny and flat and he's like he ran his floor butter over me (laughs) just like these really funny jokes but still like the central premise especially as someone who at the time hadn't seen any of the elm street movies just really scared me oh it's horrific yeah uh and i think uh there's there's a few Trees House of Horror ones that had that effect to me. The other one being um, their rendition of The Raven, which mm. even though they have these like cutaways that are designed to kind of like cut the treacle essentially or to kind of like have jokes in it because I think they the writers, I remember them on one of the audio commentaries talking about how they were worried they'd be considered un- unbelievably pretentious if they just did a straightforward rendition of The Raven. Um, so they have them like 
cutting back to Bart and Lisa and kind of like making fun of it. But even so, I remember the short, the combination of like James Earl Jones's voice over the uh, gothic stylings of it and like the real kind of like high angles they go for. It's, it is a really kind of effective short horror thing that happens to feature Homer being <laughs> menaced by a raven that has Bart's face. I think there's also a trend of things that we probably shouldn't have seen at the age mm. that we were when we saw them. And the key one for me is entirely by accident. I'm not blaming anyone, the adults uh, who I was in the care of being that young. Um, but I accidentally saw a good chunk of the faculty, my cousin's mm. birthday party. I was I was told explicitly not to go in and then I did. Um, so entirely um, my own silly um silly childhood curiosity I did myself a, a boo-boo by going and seeing the faculty um and I saw it years later and was like this is ridiculous but at the time <laughs> at the time you don't actually see through the really quite poor CGI it's just this mm. horrible idea like it's so visceral like it's a brilliant trashy pulpy body horror that actually has a reasonably uplifting ending. It's kind of like The Breakfast Club, but with aliens. Mm. But at that time, when I was that little, I just couldn't get that kind of weird, like, shrimpy sort of parasite out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. I have a similar one of that in... There was a um, there was an, a Dracula TV show that aired in the 90s. I think it was Canadian. Um, and just happened to air on Nickelodeon in the UK because it was during that period when like Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon would just put whatever they could get their hands on to fill the time. And in my mind, it was like very, very creepy and scary. And it had this kind of like, because it was, it was basically like, oh, Dracula essentially moves next door to these kids and they're the only ones that know he's a vampire and they're always kind of like fighting him and I remember the notion of that of being next door to evil and being the only one that knows about it I remember the, finding that to be like really really scary and finding that show to be like genuinely unsettling and then years ago I found like the intro for it on television and it's incredibly goofy mm. <laughs> clearly like a totally light-hearted and in no way attempting to be scary show but I just as a kid, like just uh, like you glom onto concepts and maybe not necessarily tone. And I feel like that was the case there. And, and also just like as a kid, I was always afraid of, of vampires. I just found the whole notion, particularly of like being bitten and being put under the thrall of a vampire and no longer having your own sense of self and your own free will. That sort of stuff I found to be really, really scary. And that show was largely about that, the idea of like adults who are meant to be the people who know what's happening, the people who are like your protectors suddenly being under the control of like a malevolent force. That's the sort of thing that just as a kid, I remember finding really, really unsettling. Mm. And yet again, as like things that I shouldn't have seen, um, I snuck down and watched a good chunk of Heavenly Creatures. Oh, wow. And that being a really <laughs> wild mix of kind of maybe a mild awakening, but also <laughs> how scary parts of it are, like with, mm. with the masks and the strangeness. And I mean, the chunk that I saw did not involve the murder. <laughs> um, but even, even just their um, incredibly vivid shared imaginary world was managed to be unsettling enough to really stick with me mm. yeah and that was one i remember watching really late at night and also similarly not watching all of but just capturing bits and pieces of and just finding it to be yeah just like really really unsettling in putting you in the headspace of those characters mm. and really putting you in kind of like seeing the world in a different way in a way that kind of makes you think yeah killing seems like a good idea <laughs> seems like the right option for me the i'm sure there are other examples of movies i watched way too young but the one that always leaps out to me was on a family holiday to center parks mm -hmm. being up late last late at night and catching the opening 20 minutes or so of the arnold schwarzenegger vehicle raw deal oh. which is not one of the more famous ones 
Um, he plays like an FBI agent, a disgraced FBI agent who goes undercover to kind of take down the mob. But the opening part of it, and the thing that really stuck with me is um, there's a FBI informant who's being held at a kind of cabin in probably like Michigan or somewhere like that, kind of really remote being guarded and the mob come and they kill all of the FBI agents guarding the guy and then they kill the witness. But the thing about it that really stuck with me and the bit that like really disturbed me was they make him look into a mirror and then point a gun at the back of his head and then pull the trigger so he sees himself being shot. And just that concept like absolutely horrified me. And I had no greater understanding of what was happening in the movie why this guy is being killed so as far as i knew they were just killing this person for no reason in this like really horrifying way (laughs) and that was just one of those things that really stuck with me for years and years and i've still never actually watched the movie and i think i stopped watching it because very soon after like arnold like is I think he works as like a bouncer at a strip club and there's lots of nudity and that was scary in its own way for like a nine-year-old but that was but but like the getting shot in the head thing was definitely the thing that like really stuck with me and is like the first thing I think of what was the first thing I thought of when I thought of like the mob until I watched the Sopranos and was like oh no these guys they're all really cool Um, (laughs) that was the main takeaway I took away from the Sopranos great guys great bunch of lads Um, (laughs) the other thing that I think has has largely gone away at this point because of the you know the end of the physical media and the death of video stores but I remember as a kid just being really horrified by film posters Um, because when my family lived in Nuneaton we would go to like our local corner shop to rent movies and they would have like posters up of whatever the new releases were. And I distinctly remember just being completely terrified of the poster for Candyman, which is a close-up of an eye with the Candyman figure kind of like reflected in it and a bee crawling on the edge of the eye. And, you know, at the top saying, you know, dare you say his name five times. Mm. And that that image just like really haunted me to the extent that I didn't watch the movie until maybe like 2009 or something even though it was like at that was well into the point at which I started watching horror movies for fun and that was one I remember people always talking about really being really great but like the lingering kind of sense of of horror I had from that poster alone kept me from seeing it and and the other one I think this is probably true for a lot of people was the poster for Science of the Lambs with Jodie Foster's face and the death's head moth covering her mouth like something about the abstraction of it and just like that the clear look of terror in her eyes just like really just sent a chill down my spine so evocative Mm, yeah and I feel like obviously there's still plenty of you know great posters being made for movies and stuff like that but i feel like one of the things about video stores that was really really nice particularly ones like that were like was like that sense that you could wander in and see something and feel like you saw it by mistake like you're wandering around you just see an image that's totally horrible and like wouldn't you wouldn't see in like the more sanitized environments of a cinema where you know they're trying to be like oh no this is for all ages we're not going to have like a poster up that's just genuinely very upsetting for everyone but in a video store where you know it's bored teenagers putting up posters of movies they like (laughs) they'll occasionally put something up there that traumatizes a like six-year-old edwin davis yeah uh another one um in the category for me of stuff that just kind of made the everyday world scary uh and not for the reasons that you might think when i say the title uh was song of the south which oh god yeah i watched way too many times as a child because it was available on vhs in the uk in the late 80s early 90s and i just watched all disney movies so there's very much just kind of a sense of oh right yes it's a disney movie i'll watch it i'm sure it's fine and as a kid wasn't really 
familiar with all the racist stuff. Like, that <laughs> didn't really register me, didn't really understand the context. Like, I didn't really understand what was going on. In the same way that you, like, watch Peter Pan, you don't realise, oh, there's probably something wrong about the way it's depicting Native Americans or the crows in Dumbo. Like, you're just like, oh, they're crows and they talk weird. Like, you don't really think, oh, these are caricatures and they're really offensive. But the thing about Song of the South that really terrified me is there's a bit towards the end in which the the main character, Johnny, played by jo- uh, Bobby Driscoll, is running across a field to try and get to Uncle Remus, who's been fired, and he's chasing after him to try and, you know, kind of say goodbye to him. And he runs through this field where there's a bull. And earlier in the movie, it had been established that people shouldn't go near the field because the bull will charge after anything that's there. And he ends up getting gored by it and very nearly dies. And that was the moment in the movie that had me doing the very stereotypical hide behind the sofa thing whenever I'd watch it at my grandparents' house because there was just something, you know, again, like I grew up in the countryside, there were cows and bulls everywhere. So there was this real sense of like, oh, those things that you see out in the field that are always kind of like chewing on grass and seem to be very docile, like they will just destroy you if you if you don't if you're not careful and that was one of the ones that i think like again really kind of added a sense of unease to just like being in the world in a way that you know logically doesn't isn't like a concern like chances of me being gored by a bull even living in the countryside pretty low but as a kid, you know, you see something happen in a movie, you don't really have a sense of probability or percentages. You're just right. like, oh, every bull I see is going to kill me. Yeah. That's just what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in terms of things to switch back that are never going to happen, mm-hmm. I found it incredibly hard to watch E.T. Right. As a little one, I didn't get past the Eminem trail for mm. a really long time like i could only really watch the family eating pizza so it's quite a gripping short film mm. of yeah about having pizza of having pizza and then walking along some m&ms and then being uh being curious and a bit stunned um <laughs> and i think there's something like E.T. is not really a kid's film. It features kids, but it's not a kid's Mm. film. But for some reason it was like, oh, show her the film about the baby alien. That's fine. But it is actually terrifying. It's it's more it has more in common with uh, Close Encounters than anything else, because it is part of that kind of like alien, you know, strand. But it it has such a darkness to it. Like it's not a God knows why this is the only thing that I can think of. And again, it's horrifying in its own right, but it's not lit like the Book of Henry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not that even touchstone lighting. No, it's dark and it's, you know, it's kind of built on the golden ratio and Renaissance paintings of the mother with her children. And it it feels very serious and very grown up. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, obviously we started with The Lost World, which is obviously another Spielberg one. I do feel as if there is that real undercurrent to his work that the reason why it resonates so much and the why why he is like seen as this person who like really taps into childhood is that at his best, it's not just that he kind of captures the wonder, he captures the fear. Yes. And that sense of like the world is big and exciting, and there's always new things to be found, but there's always new dangers as well. And uh, I think like you really see that in in ET. I think you see that as well in something like Temple of Doom, which is not a particularly good movie, but like the spiders, the you know the bit where uh, Kate Capshaw has to put her hand in that kind of like hole in the wall to pull a lever and there's just lots of bugs crawling over that i remember finding like really really upsetting because not only because you know bugs are gross but also because you know she is clearly very upset by it Mm. and like that is the you know the sense of empathy of like uh being able to feel sympathy for the character on screen being like oh yeah that would probably be horrible if you had to stick your hand into like a dark hole in the wall and you could feel things slithering and crawling over it um and also another not very good movie but hook like i remember oh, being I'm... sorry i i love hook i'm i'm here for <laughs> hook's defense but please carry on sorry uh i remember as a kid seeing hook and being just like incredibly upset 
by the bit at the start where I want to say Alfred Molina is like pushed into that coffin and they drop a load of scorpions in with him. And just, I remember that being just like really, really horrible. Mm. (laughs) And just like, again, scorpions, not exactly a concern of my everyday life at that point. Uh, A little bit now, (laughs) because occasionally you get scorpions in Florida, but you know like as a kid just being like oh scorpions they're like these little things that can crawl around and they have a stinger and it will kill you although i don't think scorpions are necessarily that deadly Mm -hmm. i think it's more like if you got stung with one you would have a bad time but it's not like it would kill you instantly as is often the case in basically any adventure film or tv show that uses them but like that was one of those moments that i remember watching it and being like oh this is not nice (laughs) this is not a pleasant thing Mm. So yeah, so Spielberg and Bugs. He loves really just kind of uh, causing people to feel incredibly upset by it. Oh yeah, speaking of Bugs, Men in Black is one for me. Mm, Another one yeah. that I couldn't really, as a little, well, in me, like immensely sensitive rather than the incredibly insensitive uh, sensitive that I am now. That was Freudian, whoops. Um, <laughs> but uh, Men in Black features a lot of uh, bug eating. Um, yeah. But the opening made me so incredibly upset because I couldn't bear to see someone as vulnerable as that nice old man with his jewellery shop and his lovely cat um, being mm. being kind of, you know, the surveillance that was so um, sinister. <laughs> um, I found it so deeply upsetting. I couldn't watch it until a dear friend of mine, <laughs> family friend, went, leave the room and then come back in and we'll finally watch the rest of this film. So I did and I managed... But yeah, like, and and realizing, like, oh, it's also an alien inside a man, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a galaxy on a cat's collar. Really fun. Oh, I miss when Men in Black was a great thing. <laughs> mm, yeah, the death in Men in Black that always used to upset me, and it's not even one that happens on screen. You only see the aftermath of it, but the waiter that gets like snapped in half and you only see him like folded up in a in a trolley i just remember that being just like the the thought of the the amount of pressure and pain that that would cause for someone to literally just fold you um i just yeah that that to me was like uh genuine (laughs) genuinely very unsettling uh and yeah again it's like in a movie that's otherwise like like pretty much like the perfect blockbuster like really fun great sense of energy good jokes like the effects are really good but then there'd be just something like that where i'd just be like really just send a shiver down my spine uh also i just uh the the shot of um <laughs> the shot of david cross being like glued to the wall in all of that gunk oh, after nice. he is uh after he has annoyed the guy in the edgar suit um <laughs> too much and murdered all of those uh or sprayed all of those cockroaches yeah i remember that being one of those things that really kind of stood out to me yeah uh and then uh the the final thing i have on my list is kind of just like a whole category of movies that just kind of like fed into a neurosis i clearly had um which is uh stories about orphans and stories of separation which were the things that really, really scared me as a kid um, because, uh, like, uh, my family moved around a lot for my parents' work. So, like, there was a real sense of, like, oh, the only constant in my life was, like, my parents and my sister and my family. And so, like, as a kid, reading, like, Roald Dahl books, which are pretty much all about orphans, um, and watching things like A Little Princess, which I remember watching quite a lot, which isn't technically an orphan story, but the main character, at one point, people think her father has died because he's in the war and he's kind of been mustard gassed and he's got amnesia, so everyone thinks her father has died. Um, those kind of stories, like, really resonated with me because they really were tapping into, like, the thing I feared the most, which would be the idea of my parents dying and just, like quote unquote being alone in the world i wouldn't be i wouldn't have been alone like i would have had family and friends and things like that but like as a kid you know that's just like the most horrifying thing that i could uh that i could think of and yet i watched and read (laughs) all the stories about it i think as a kind of a a way of i don't know kind of like processing those things in my childhood which i i described as being kind of very much a wells for boys kind of childhood of uh, (laughs) just kind of lots of pensive looking 
very often whenever I would go and stay with my uh, my mother's parents um, on the day that they would be coming back to pick me up like I would basically just stand at the window and look out the window until their car pulled up often for hours uh, unless they were like uh, they just said Edwin stop doing that come and have tea or whatever um, just because I was really worried that they were gonna get eaten by a rhinoceros like uh, <laughs> James's parents in James and the Giant Peach yes i mean watch out for that <laughs> yeah again incredibly common thing that obviously is going to happen <laughs> yes statistically speaking <laughs> so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot verse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well, I'm not sure if listeners are aware, but I know I mentioned to you towards the end of last year, I went on a weekend introduction to clowning course run by the glorious Holly Stop It. And Holly is a fantastic person. And you can see this for yourselves in a TED talk that she did that has recently been released on YouTube um, about the benefits of clowning and its connections to being more connected to people and vulnerability. And it's a really glorious 20 minutes of your day. She does some really fantastic clowning as part of it. And it's very open about her journey uh, throughout her life. And I think it's magic. So I really, really cannot recommend it strongly enough. Cool. I'm going to recommend a, a short film that came out earlier this year. We obviously talked a bit about uncut gems at the start of the episode and this ties into this because the Safties worked with Adam Sandler again and made a short film called Goldman v Silverman which they released I think on their Vimeo page I'll put a link to the uh, to this in the, the the description for anyone who wants to watch it and it's about rival performers in Times Square one played by Adam Sandler a guy who covers himself all in gold paint and kind of blows a kazoo and pretends to be like a living statue and one called Silverman played by Benny Safdie and the rivalry between the two of them it's this like really funny uh short that has them just like being really antagonistic to each other and really kind of bickering over um their spot in Times square and also has this like real sense of of melancholy to it of these two guys who are pitted against each other for no other reason and the kind of the sense of sadness that overcomes them as they realize that they're fighting over nothing and it's just a really nice like seven or eight minute i think short and it's really really funny and really it for me it was like really nice to see the adam sandler work with the safties so soon after uncut gems <laughs> and just a real kind of like sense of how much he clearly enjoys those guys that he would just go out into Times square with real people watching him be a street performer for however long it took them to film this funny little in inconsequential wonderful little short if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me ta -ra.